Good evening, everybody, and thank you, Sue, for that real nice introduction. And I want to welcome all of you to our monthly telephone education program. And especially on a night like this, where many of you probably were fighting the traffic for hours,、uh, it's really something that's very, very nice that you could join us.、Uh, this podcast is going to be recorded, and it's going to be placed on a few different places. So. If there's certain types of information you want to hear again, you could listen to that at your pleasure, and it's going to be available and is being recorded by Airs LA, and that is at www.airsairsla.org. So if you go to airsla.org, you could find this particular website, and you'll find the podcast. It'll also be available. On the Braille Institute website at www.brailleinstitute.org, and also on my website, which is drbillfoundation.org. So tonight we're going to talk about something that is called neurological vision impairment. And when we think about children who suffer from vision impairment, the first thing that comes to mind is that these children have something wrong with their eyes. Well, in reality. At our center, the Center for the Partially Sighted, what we find is that over 51% of the children that we see at our clinic actually have vision loss that is primarily not related to their eyes. In other words, their eyes are usually not the main cause that they have these particular types of vision problems. So, to better understand this condition called neurological vision impairment, we have to understand a little bit how does vision take place. How does it occur? The first step in terms of for vision to occur is that we do have to have two eyes or one eye. The eyes are merely receivers of light, and when light from a person's face or a toy or any other object enters the eye, it then converts a light signal into an electrical impulse. This electrical impulse is then sent down a nerve, which is called the optic nerve. And the optic nerve eventually gets to the very back of your head, which is called the occipital lobe of the brain. So many people, they often might have very healthy eyes, but the connection between the eyes to the brain may be faulty, or it may be that the very back part of the brain, the occipital lobe of the brain, has been affected. In the 1970s, there was some very, very important research studies being performed by doctors Hubel and Weasel. And what they basically did is they studied the vision of cats. How is it that a cat is able to see? And what they did is that they raised these kittens in different environments. With one group of kittens, they raised them in a normal type of environment where there were toys and colors and lights and all these other types of visual stimuli. The second group, when these kittens were born, they immediately sutured those kittens' eyes shut. And what they did is they went and they studied. The brains of these kittens, 15 weeks after, and when they later studied the brains of these kittens after that fact, they found out there was a particular region of the brain that was much smaller in the kittens who had their eyes sutured shut, and they found it was the very back part of the brain called the occipital lobe of the brain. So from this study, they realized that this back part of the brain is the region where vision takes place. There was something different about that area. What they then did is they took another group of kittens who had their eyes sutured shut, 
And after 15 weeks of having their eyes sutured shut, they went ahead and they provided the kittens with visual stimulation. With that particular amount of visual stimulation, they wanted to find out, is it such that if you provide vision stimulation, can these brain cells actually develop? And what they found was that for those kittens that received the vision stimulation after 15 weeks, those brain cells in that part of the brain, they did not grow. But the kittens who received vision stimulation before 15 weeks, those brain cells in, in fact, did grow. So the main point to this particular type of study, it shows us a few very, very important facts. Number one, we know that vision actually occurs in the brain and not in the eyes. Number two, in order for that part of the brain to develop, we need to stimulate that part of the brain before a particular time period. And we find that in human beings, we find that the first five years is the most important time. And number three, this study also shows that if a child does have sensory deprivation where the brain did not get stimulated, there still is that potential of those cells of the brain to develop. So what does this mean for families of children who have vision problems that is caused by damage to the visual parts of the brain? What it means is that even if your child does have vision impairment that's caused by brain damage, we do know that there is a potential of those brain cells of improving its function. And if we provide that type of stimulation during the first five years of life, we find that these kids can develop higher levels of vision. The first thing that we want to think about then is what is the cause of neurological vision impairment? If it is the number one cause of legal blindness among children, why is it that we see so many kids who have vision problems that are caused by the brain and not the eyes? Well, the main cause of neurological vision impairment is when these brain cells do not receive enough oxygen. They might be deprived of oxygen because the baby might not be breathing when he or she is born. It might be a situation where the child suffered from a hemorrhage, a brain bleed which resulted in specific areas of the brain to not get enough oxygen. Or it could also be that there's other types of problems where a child might have swallowed merconium. Or we might have found a situation that a child shortly after birth had seizures. Or it could be that there's just an abnormal development of the brain. We see many children who are born premature, they often have brain hemorrhages and these brain hemorrhages can damage the back of the brain. In some cases, you might hear the terms periventricular leukomalacia, PVL, periventricular leukomalacia. And in these particular types of situation, the child's visual centers of the brain do not process that information normally. We also see situations where kids might have seizures, and during these seizures, the seizure activity can also interfere with the function of these various regions of the brain. Now one of the reasons that we hypothesize that there's more kids with neurological vision impairment is actually because of the advances in medical technology. We're now seeing children who are born as young as 22 weeks and these kids who years ago would not have been able to survive, these kids are now surviving. So the kids that typically in the past would have not made it are now surviving. 
And so this is why we're also seeing more and more kids with very, very low birth weight who have suffered from different types of neurological vision impairment. And as a result, these kids are often very, very visually impaired. Now, there's different types of neurological vision impairment, and these are things that you do need to see an eye doctor to have this diagnosed. Typically, you want to be seen by a neurological ophthalmologist. Okay, These neurological ophthalmologists are doctors who are both ophthalmologists who have a very, very high specialization in neurology. In your area, you might have difficulties finding some of these very specialized types of pediatric neuro-ophthalmologists, but if you do live in the Los Angeles area, we're very fortunate to have quite a few who are excellent. We have in Los Angeles Dr. Mark Borchard of Children's Hospital Los Angeles and at UCLA Dr. Joseph Deemer. When these doctors take a look at your child, they could perform different types of tests. They might do a MRI or a CAT scan, and from this they can actually look at different regions of the brain. Also, based on your child's history, they can get a better understanding. If your child had low birth weight, if your child was born prematurely, if your child wasn't breathing early on, or if your child had some type of hemorrhage or periventricular leukomalacia, these particular types of diagnosis are strong indicators that there is neurological vision impairment. Now one form of neurological vision impairment is called cortical blindness. Now cortical blindness at our center it accounts for about 7% of all the children that we see who have neurological vision impairment. In other words, when we see a 100 children who have vision impairment that's primarily related to damage to the visual parts of the brain, about 7 of them, 7 out of 100, will have cortical blindness. These are the children who actually have such significant damage to the occipital lobe of the brain that they don't have any vision. For these children, the prognosis of improving their vision is very, very poor. So when we see these kids, we often want to be very, very careful about recommending vision stimulation and other types of programs for too long of a time. For these kids, it's often going to be very important that they learn to develop their tactile skills, their pre-braille skills, so that they can learn to use all of their other types of senses. You know, for me, now as an eye doctor who's totally blind, I really have a little different type of perspective about this. I sort of feel that any person would really benefit from developing more of these types of tactile skills. I think that in some situations there could even be people who have perfect vision who could be so strong with their tactile skills that they might even be able to read faster with Braille than they could with their eyes. We know that there's many situations that people have different types of vision problems that affects their speed of reading or their comprehension. So overall, I do strongly recommend that again, it's important to identify those kids who do have cortical blindness. Now it's also very important that parents and teachers and healthcare professionals understand that many times children with neurological vision impairment are misdiagnosed as having cortical blindness. And this is very, very important because if a child is misdiagnosed as having cortical blindness, most people will assume that that child is in fact totally blind when he or she is not. 
One of the reasons why many doctors make this misdiagnosis is that in the past, if you look at some of the insurance billing books that have the insurance codes, the code for neurological vision impairment was called cortical blindness. So out of habit, many times if a child has a vision problem that's not due to the eyes and it's due to brain, we often will diagnose those kids as cortical blindness. But hopefully, more and more doctors are using the technique that we are where we say there's a large category which is going to be called neurological vision impairment and underneath that there's three subcategories. One of them is cortical blindness. The second category underneath neurological vision impairment is called delayed visual maturation. And delayed visual maturation accounts for about 2%. Two out of every hundred children with neurological vision impairment that we see at our center actually have delayed visual maturation. Now, with delayed visual maturation, this is the best type of neurological vision impairment to have. These children, what we find is that by about 36 months, by about three years of age, their vision is almost developed to near normal. For some unknown reason, these children, when they're born very early on, they have difficulties with making these connections within the visual centers of the brain. They respond extremely well to vision stimulation, and again, by 36 months, their vision is typically normal or very near normal. The most common category of neurological vision impairment is the third one, and that is what is called cortical vision impairment. This accounts for about 91%, or 9 out of every 10 kids, with neurological vision impairment will be diagnosed with cortical vision impairment, also abbreviated as CVI. Now when kids have cortical vision impairment, we find that most of these kids do in fact have vision. But what's very interesting is that most of them will tend to use their peripheral vision or their side vision. They're more interested in looking at things that are moving, flashing, or changing and they also will tend to have difficulties with making eye contact or looking at things straight ahead. So for these children, many times you might go right in front of their face and you might look at your child and they actually will turn and look away from you. This is one way that they could use their peripheral vision. Or as your child starts to reach for toys or objects, you notice that as he or she is reaching, she actually is never looking at the bottle, never looking at the ball never looking at the toy, they're always looking off to the side. These kids, if you turn on a video, many times they're not that interested in looking at the video until the credits come on at the end. And the reason is that they're more interested in looking at the high contrast, the black and white letters, things that are scrolling up and down the screen, or things that are blinking and changing and moving. Now what we know about neurology is that within the visual system, we think that there are two different types of pathways. One pathway sends information from the center of the eye to the very center of the brain. The other pathway is the peripheral pathway. This is where nerves from the peripheral regions of the eye end up in the peripheral parts of the brain. And most children with neurological vision impairment, delayed visual maturation, and cortical vision impairment are much, much more interested in using that peripheral system. 
So when we talk about developing a vision stimulation program for these kids, it's very important that we use the right toys. If we simply hang a mobile on top of the baby, the baby might not be interested unless it's moving. So we need to do things that might make it move. Perhaps we're going to attach a slight little desk fan, and that fan's going to slightly bowl the mobile so it's going to be moving. We also see that many children with CVI, they're not going to be interested if you give them a stuffed animal or some other toy. But if you just move your face in front of them, they often become aroused. You'll notice that their eyes become bigger and they begin to track. These kids might also really enjoy it if you attach some high contrast patterns to a ceiling fan and you start to spin the ceiling fan very slowly. These kinds of patterns are very, very stimulating. Now what's also very interesting is that these particular types of behaviors are often those behaviors that we frequently see with children who have autism. Kids with autism, they often don't look straight ahead. They don't like to look at things that are stationary. But if they're walking down the street, they might see cars passing by. They just become mesmerized. They like to look at picket fences. They like to look at repetitive patterns of wallpaper and they move their head from side to side. So this is something that's very unique about children with cortical vision impairment and this is why your child would also benefit from what's called a developmental low vision examination. Now a developmental low vision examination is typically performed by what are called developmental optometrists. The main difference between optometrists and ophthalmologists are that ophthalmologists are MDs. They're medical doctors who are trained to perform surgery. On the other hand, optometrists are trained to understand the development of vision, what parts of the brain perform various visual functions, and they're also trained to prescribe specialized glasses and prisms and exercises to help to promote the development of vision. Now during that developmental low vision examination, the child with cortical vision impairment will often receive a complete assessment so that the therapists and the teachers and the parents will know what the child can see. If the brain has been affected more on one side than the other, this might mean that the child could see better on his or her right side as compared to the left. So this is how we're going to tell the parents, let's present all the toys from the right side. We can also evaluate what's going to be the best type of lighting situation. For many children with cortical vision impairment, about 30% of them are overly sensitive to bright light. We might need to subdue the lights to improve the contrast in the vision. We could also evaluate what particular types of colors are going to be more effective. Very often, children with neurological vision impairment are more stimulated by red and white patterns or red and yellow. So this is a strategy that we could use when we want to try to increase the child's visual attention. A great percentage, about 40% of children with neurological vision impairment have difficulties coordinating both eyes together as a team. What happens in these situations is that these kids might see double vision and if they have double vision it's going to affect their eye-hand coordination and it will also affect the development of their motor skills. So the developmental low vision assessment is going to evaluate all of these types of functional skills to help to create a treatment plan. Now for many children who are very very young they have difficulties with using that central vision and as a result we might prescribe glasses. 
The purpose of the glasses is to intensely focus the light onto the central retina to help the child to stimulate the central part of the brain. We also want to use specific types of patterns. The patterns that are going to be smaller in nature are going to force the child to use a central vision. So these are the types of things that the low vision examination will do and then the low vision optometrist will typically refer you to a program where you can receive early intervention treatment services. In some cases it might be with your local school or a SELPA or it could be other types of organizations that might be private or it could be public. With these particular types of treatment plans we find that about a third of the kids make significant gains in their vision which can promote the development of their motor, their language, and also much of their behavior. But we also see that unfortunately there are some children with neurological vision impairment that the brain damage is so extensive that it affects other components. If it affects some of the other left side regions of the brain, it might significantly affect speech. If it affects other regions of the frontal regions of the brain, it might affect some of their thought processing, problem solving. So it's important to have realistic expectations and to understand the entire child itself. In other words, for children with neurological vision impairment, it's not a situation that we could simply cure the eyesight and everything is going to be perfect. The brain is interconnected and about two-thirds of the brain is involved in vision. Two-thirds. So this is why we feel it's so important to incorporate vision in speech therapy, physical therapy, and occupational therapy as well. So overall, the child with neurological vision impairment should first be seen by a neuro-ophthalmologist. Next, he or she should be seen by a developmental low-vision optometrist. And then, the neuro-ophthalmologist and the developmental low-vision optometrist can develop a treatment plan which can be implemented by early intervention specialists. We find that in Pittsburgh, Dr. Christine Roman has had tremendous success in working with kids who are even older than what we have seen with improving their vision. So this is something that there's extensive research being performed on neurological vision impairment, especially with so many soldiers returning from Iraq. Some of the latest studies are showing that there's something called transcraniomagnetic stimulation, where electrical signals are passed through the skull, and we're finding that it's altering and improving the visual function. So it's very, very important that we do as much as we can for all of these kids whether it's your child or it's your student, we don't want to give up because we've seen some amazing things happening with these kids. Okay, so let's go ahead and uh, let's open up to uh, some questions. Are there any questions? Yeah, the question is, how can we suspect that a child might have neurological vision impairment and are there certain signs and symptoms that you want to look for? Well, the strongest sign or predictor that we want to look for is the history. If the child was born premature and had a reduced amount of oxygen, or in the chart notes if the doctor states that this child had suffered from hypoxia, which means low oxygen, anoxia, anoxia means without oxygen, asphyxia, 
any of these particular types of terms are really a red flag that we really want to then look very carefully to see whether or not that there has been some type of neurological involvement. You also want to look at the APGAR score. Sometimes in the pediatrician's notes, it will describe APGAR. And when an APGAR score is low, whether it's 2 or 3 out of 10, then these are situations where, again, we might want to go ahead and make that appointment. Ask your primary care physician to refer you to be seen by a neurologist. Now, there's other types of conditions there that you might look for some of these types of symptoms. For example, if you notice that the child seems to have difficulties with opening one or both eyelids, that indicates that maybe the nerve is not functioning normally to be able to open the eyes. You could also do what we call infantile screening tests. One thing that we first do is we'll just look at the symmetry of the baby's face. Is one side of the face sagging or is it pretty much symmetrical? Number two, we could look at the eyelids. Does the baby blink both eyelids? Do both eyelids open up equally? Number three, we could then look in the eyes. We could look at the pupils. Are the pupils of each eye equal or is one much larger or smaller than the other? We then go ahead and do other types of neurological types of tests. Well, we might go ahead and wash our hands, use our finger, and tap the child right at the bridge of the nose. When we tap the child right at the bridge of the nose, we want to expect that the child is going to blink. We could then take our hand and quickly bring it right in front of the child's face, almost as though we're going to go ahead and hit the child in the face to see if there is that type of blink. When some of these types of reflexes are not there, or they just don't seem to be very responsive, then that's a, a good indication to have this child be seen by a neuro-ophthalmologist. Is there another question? Okay, so this is a young girl who seems to be making tremendous overall developmental gains, but like a very young infant, one that's two or three months old, she still only likes to look at black and white patterns. The first question that we would have is to really kind of understand how old is this girl. What we do know is that most children for the first two months of life, they are only interested in black and white. And by the time that they're about 12 months old, they do have the ability to see primary colors. By two years of age, they can then start to discriminate and see other types of more subtle colors. So that's one of the things that we want to understand is, you know, what is the age? If this child is over 12 months of age, then my feeling is that he or she might have what's called reduced contrast vision. In other words, when we use something that's going to be very black on white, that produces the highest level of contrast. So the next way that we could start to encourage her to start to track, especially if she has cortical vision impairment, would be to use rotating drums. By using a rotating drum, we could then use different levels of color and reduce the room lights in the room. We could then shine a bright light that's going to be on this rotating drum. And this is going to increase the contrast to help this child to gain the attention and the arousal. We want to spin the drum slowly and see if she's going to look at it on her left side and then start to follow it to the midline. Then very quickly we'll move it very quickly to the right side 
and see if she's going to then track it to the right side and come back to the midline. So one way that you might transfer from black and white would be again to increase the amount of illumination that's on the patterns and then to increase the amount of movement. Another thing that we also find to be helpful is if the child enjoys eating, we could then start to develop positive association. For example, if a child likes to drink from a bottle, we might start out with using black electrical tape on a white bottle. And this contrast is going to be very stimulating. But then, within time, we could then start to go to red electrical tape and move that bottle from one place to another and encourage a child to reach for the bottle with both hands at the midline to start to drink. Now, once a child is starting to do this, where he or she is starting to reach for different toys, there's a lot of other types of things that we can do. One toy that's also very, very helpful is that we often like to use kitten balls. And these are the little glittery balls that have a little bell in it, and you could roll them. If you have a very, very neutral or even just a white background, like using poster board or a white sheet. Sometimes you could roll these brightly lit red balls, and a child may then start to reach for it. We could then start to get them to reach for those types of things with both hands, and then we see that the child's going to be on his or her way. But if the child really just continues to truly, truly like just the black and white types of patterns, I would still continue to use black and white patterns and then start to reduce the size of the black and white patterns. I would rather that the child is using her vision to look for these things, such as food items, or a cup, or a bottle, or toys that's black and white, as compared to trying to go to colors that they just really don't see. It sounds to me that if the child is three, and still having these kinds of problems, this child might actually have a color vision problem, and at that point in time, we might use colored glasses if a child has a specific type of color vision problem, then we might use specific colored glasses to enhance the color vision. So, for example, many children who have suffered from neurological vision impairment have damage to the nerve that sends information from the eye to the brain. And these kids, very early on, they have difficulty seeing red. The red might appear to be very, very faded, like a very light pink. So, in these cases, we might go ahead and use a slightly green tint so when they do see something that's a red it won't look so faded and so light but rather it's almost going to look like something that's a, a black color okay so that helps them to actually to see that object it doesn't bring back their color vision but it still helps them to see that object so when we think about kids who might have color blindness we could sort of think about it like black and white TV in the 1950s. You see these different shades of gray, and pretty soon you could start to identify different colors based on that shade of gray. So I would try some of those things, and then we could see how she's doing based on her developmental age. Another question? Okay, well, if anybody has any other types of questions, you're more than welcome. You could email me at bill at drbillfoundation.org or you could call me at 310-597-2549 that's 310-597-2549 so thank you for tuning in to this Braille Institute podcast and 
We hope that you tune in next time for more from Airs LA. Thank you.